welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Chapter 3 this morning. It wasn't too long ago that a local school zone was having a problem with people speeding through there. I don't know if you guys know this. You should know this. School zones drop to 25 miles per hour when kids are present. Some of you look very guilty right now. And so they had been having a lot of complaints about cars just zooming through there, not obeying the traffic laws. And so the supervisor of the state troopers talked to Trooper Jones. He said, Trooper Jones, your job this week is to sit in that school zone and get this under control. Nobody is getting out of this. You see somebody speeding, no warnings. I want tickets written. So Officer Jones goes down there. On the first day, he sits there through his entire shift. He pulls over and writes tickets to 34 different individuals that are breaking the speed zone through there. The next day, people know that there's a state trooper around. It's slowed down. Only 29 people pulled over that day. Day three, it changes, though. Trooper Jones goes, and he sits at the school zone, and he's waiting, and he pulls over in an entire shift, only one car speeding through the speed zone. He thought, man, word has got out quick that I'm sitting here, but that's what we want. On the fourth day, he goes out, and he pulls over and writes a ticket to only one car. Sadly enough, it's the exact same person as the day before. He's not very smart. Now, he's reporting these ticket numbers to his supervisor every day, and the supervisor's starting to wonder, is Trooper Jones really doing his job out there? Is it really only taking two days to slow all of this down? So on the fifth day, the supervisor decides, I'm going to go cruise by and check on Trooper Jones. So as he's driving up to the school zone, right before he comes over the hill and comes around the curve, right before that, he sees a young boy up there holding a sign. As he gets closer, he begins to read the sign, and and the young boy standing there with a sign that says, Police ahead, slow down now. So the supervisor pulls over and he says, What are you doing? And the little boy, innocent as can be, just being nice to my neighbors, you know, helping people out. And so the supervisor scolds him and says, You can't do this. And he takes his sign and he says, You need to go on home. You can't, you can't be warning people that he's sitting up there. And, and as the boy's walking around away, he turns back to, his, uh, to the supervisor and he says, uh, Are you going to take my friend's sign away too? The supervisor said, you just go on home. So the supervisor drives on past Trooper Jones, and about a quarter mile down the road past Trooper Jones, he sees another little boy holding a sign. And as he gets there, he sees the sign does not read, warning, police ahead. It says, you're welcome, tips appreciated. And he stood there with a bucket full of money. To my police friends, I'm sorry to use that joke this morning. Now, we, we value warnings of impending punishment, don't we? We value when somebody tells us that something bad is going to happen, and it gives us an opportunity to change. Many of you parents know this, and I've learned this as a parent. Uh, uh, all the things you said you wouldn't do as a parent, you will do. Like, like we always swore, we're going to be the parents. Our daughter's going, when we tell her to do something, she's going to do it the first time. There ain't going to be any of this counting business. Every day, one, you guys know the count, two, and then you start over, one, two. Like we, we value warnings as a way of changing somebody, changing before they reach a punishment. And what Paul has been doing in Romans is he is just giving this amazing warning with the gospel that there is judgment and punishment ahead for mankind if they do not repent and turn away for their sin. Now what's good about this is it provides us when we hear the gospel, when we speak the gospel, 
It provides an opportunity to change. Because what Paul has told us and what the scripture tells us is that there is a righteous judge who sits in heaven who will punish all sin and there are no loopholes, no way out of this that you or I can come up with ourselves. So, so Paul's been teaching and he's been speaking specifically to a group of people who were religious, but they were not followers of Christ. These people believed that they were special to God because of their actions, the Jewish people, and they followed the law. Now, if you're not familiar with the law, a quick overview is, is God chose Abraham and made a covenant with him that out of his descendants, he would great, make a great nation. We call these people the Jews or the Israelites. And so they followed this set of rules that God gave them that was supposed to set them aside and set them apart from the rest of society. But as time goes on, the Jews had begun to believe that if they just followed the rules, that they would be found innocent before God. They had a belief that their actions were good enough. And Paul has just been obliterating that argument, and he's going to continue on here in chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles with you, please read with me chapter 3. This is verses 1 through 4. So Paul is speaking, answering a question. He says, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them which were committed to the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. So Paul is addressing a question for Jewish people. The Jewish people are asking, okay, God chose us. He gave us this law, this set of rules. If it doesn't make us righteous, if it doesn't make us okay before God, what's the purpose in following all these rules? Have we wasted our life? Have we wasted our heritage? Was this just a big joke? And what Paul says, Says, is Paul says, no, no, it wasn't a big joke. He says, as a matter of fact, you served a huge purpose. He said, you were entrusted, the Jewish people were entrusted with what Paul calls the oracles of God. Now, most of the time when you hear oracles, you think of something like a psychic or a soothsayer, which, which by the way, those are occultic. Christians should never engage with psychics, soothsayers, anything of that, somebody that can tell your future. But what Paul is referring to here is Paul is referring to the Jewish people were entrusted with the message of the coming, um, of the coming salvation. So the purpose of the Jewish religion was not that your actions make you right before God. The purpose of the Jewish religion religion was to prove that perfection is impossible, but to carry a pro promise of a gracious, loving God who will provide salvation for us. Not that actions can save you. So that's our first point this morning, is morality points to God's righteousness and does not provide salvation. Christians, we need to hear this today. You being here, you cleaning up your life will never make you right before God. You will never be able to, of your yourself do enough good things to make you righteous before God. Instead, morality has always pointed to the goodness of God and pointed to salvation. When we come to church and we talk about rules, and we do, we talk about rules, we talk about the way that God has taught us to love. We should love our neighbor. We should turn the other cheek to, the, uh, to our enemies. We should do all of these things, and we talk about those. Those things do not make us righteous before God. Those things simply point to a change in us after we have been made righteous with God. 
It's a little bit like this. Um, for Christmas, one of the things that we did for Oakley is is we got her a trip to see Coco Melon Live. I don't know if you guys heard, you guys heard of Coco Melon Live uh, or Coco Melon. Coco Melon toddlers. They sing nursery rhymes. It's horrible. I hated it. And so, like this whole week, getting ready to take her down to Simmons Bank Arena to see Coco Melon Live. I was just I was mad. You know, I was mad. I used to be cool. I used to have the truck with the loud exhaust and the big subwoofers. I used to spend all this money on cool clothes. I used to be so cool. And all of a sudden, I look in the mirror. I'm 35. I wear glasses. My pants don't fit. My hair is gray. And the biggest event on my calendar in three months is Coco Melon Live. I was so upset. But we went down there, and after we walked the mile it took to get there in the rain, we sat down with our little girl, and we watched her just enjoy this show. And we danced, and we sung, and we clapped, head, shoulders, knees, and toes. I mean, we did it all. And it was a great night. What changed in me was that I had become a dad. See, that relationship with her changed who I am. I am no longer the kind of man that wants to deafen you with how loud the music in my vehicle is. I am now the kind of man who dances to the wheels on the bus in Simmons Bank Arena because that relationship changed me. Now, I didn't sit down when I knew I was going to be dad. I didn't sit down and go, okay, I got to make myself like nursery rhymes. I got to figure out all of these things and then I will be worthy to be a dad and then I can be a dad. The relationship changed me. I didn't change for the relationship. And so what Paul is saying here is, is when we come to know God, the, the actions that we have, the changes in us are proof of the change that God is making, not a change before God in, in the way that we live. So if we as Christians, if we love our neighbor, what we're doing is we're reflecting God's love because we've already received God's love. If we live our life with generosity, we're not earning God's favor by giving things away. We're reflecting God's generosity that we have received to the world. These are the effects of knowing God, not the causes of salvation. So, so Paul is then going to continue to ask the question, if the law points to the goodness of God, when we fail, when somebody fails to, to show the goodness of God, does that nullify God's goodness? And Paul says, no, absolutely not. Like, yes, you show the goodness of God when you live righteously, but you failing to live righteously does not nullify God's goodness. There is nothing you or I could do to ever be unfaithful enough to change God's goodness, his justice, his glory, and his love. It is simply impossible. As a matter of fact, what we do when we fail is we make his righteousness shine brighter. If you compare God's perfection to me, it makes God look that much brighter. Think of it this way. If you have a clean dish, you probably don't notice a clean dish. What you do notice is when you put a bunch of dirty dishes around the clean dish, that clean dish sticks out. If you were to take your house and you were to redo your house, repaint it, fix it all up, it might not stand out in a field, but if it was in a, a, a neighborhood full of broken down houses, it would probably stand out. So even in our failure, God is glorified in the fact that he, um, his righteousness shines brighter. Now, Paul says that, and then I love this about Paul. He's smart enough to go ahead and figure out what the human argument about that will be. So read with me verses 5 through 8. 
So Paul's going to address that. He says, but if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who takes vengeance? I speak as a man. What he's saying is, I'm coming up with a human argument that I want to answer. Verse 6, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God has more abounded through my lie unto his glory, what yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we being slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. So Paul goes into this human argument because we're always scheming and trying to get out of things. Well, what he says is, okay, if our imperfection compared to the perfection of God makes God's perfection shine brighter, aren't we doing God a favor a little bit? I mess up, you look brighter, and then in that fact, should I not be punished? Because God, I kind of did you a favor. And Paul says, that's, that's a dumb way to look at things. That's a dumb way to express things, is that, that because I mess up, that God doesn't owe me punishment because in some way it makes his glory shining brighter. It's like this. What if a bank robber was caught after robbing a bank? He makes his way off with several hundred thousand dollars. The police having, they're interrogating him, and they're like, why did you do this? And he's like, well, look, um, yes, I did rob the bank. That was a bad thing. But look at the bright side. I showed you what, what security issues that bank has that you can now fix. You should let me go because I did you a favor. Everybody in this room would say, no, that's not correct. And that's what Paul is saying is, is that we are in need of judgment or we deserve judgment no matter what. There's no way out of it. Now, I love the way that Paul talks about things. He, he's making an argument here that we do not make God righteous, it's that we simply reveal his righteousness. And in college, we had to write these things called essays. You guys remember essays in high school and college? And one of them was argumentative. And what you had to do is you had to define something that you had an opinion on. You had to argue for it. You had to tell all of the things that people might argue against it. And you had to convince somebody that you were correct. When Paul writes, he's writing an argumentative essay to prove one point with logic. And this is the conclusion that he's come up with. Your next take-home truth is, all people deserve and cannot escape punishment. All people deserve and cannot escape punishment. Listen to verses 9 through 10 as Paul continues. He says, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So Paul's taking this distinction that people may find in their lives at this time. Jews and Gentiles. Gentile is a fancy word for anybody who's not a Jew. And he's saying God makes no distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. We all stand before him as sinners. It'd be like the things that we divide our society about. You know, some people are better than others. Republicans and Democrats white and African-American. We come up with all of these distinctions and for some reason humans for all of their life have said one group of people is better than the other. Paul's making this argument. Nobody is better than the other when it comes to standing before God as a righteous judge. We will all stand before him as sinners. There is none righteous. No, not one. And to illustrate this point, he's going to use a conglomerate of verses from the Old Testament in verses 10 through 18. He takes these primarily from Psalm and Isaiah. And what I want you to listen to is as he's talking about these verses, he takes these scriptures and he's making a point about the completeness of our sinfulness, about how sinful we actually are. You're going to see him use words like none with anything that's a positive trait. There are nobody with these positive traits. Notice he doesn't say mostly people don't do this. He says there are none righteous. Righteous. 
And then he'll use on the opposite side of that, when it comes to positive traits or negative traits, he'll say, we are all sinners. We are all guilty. So read with me here in verses 11 through 12 as he continues to go through this describing our sinfulness. He says, There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Did you see the completeness of that? There is none that do this, there are none that do good, there are none that understand. All of us fail in this way. And to illustrate his completeness, he's going to use the imagery of a human body. Have you guys ever heard somebody say, that's a Razorback fan from head to toe? What Paul's going to say to us is, that's a sinner. You are a sinner from head to toe. So he's going to start at the top. He's going to talk about functions that are associated with the brain. So your next take-home truth is, our mentalities are sinful. Look at what he points out. He says, nobody understands mental pursuit. Nobody seeks. That's also a mental pursuit. There are none who do good. See, when he talks about understanding, understanding is simply grasping the situation. He says, there's nobody that really grasped who they are apart from the gospel. Nobody really grasped who God is compared to them. We're, we're born with a under, no understanding of God. And when we don't grasp something, it doesn't change us. I've told you guys about living um, in an apartment in college. Me and four best, three best friends, four men living in a two-bedroom apartment, one bathroom. And um, one of my friends had had a particularly late night one night, and he was sleeping through the next day, and he had to go to work at 5, uh, 5 p.m., not 5 a.m. About 5.10, I thought, maybe I should wake him up and get him to go to work. And so I went in his room and I grabbed him. I was like, hey man, you're going to be late for work. You got you to gotta go. Like, it's already 5.10. You're supposed to be there at 5. And he did the, mm, you know, whatever. It's like, get out of this bed. And he finally goes, fine. And he sits up. Now, I think I've done a good deed. And in my mind, he's thinking, I'm late for work. I'm so thankful to Brian for waking me up. I'll buy him supper later. That didn't happen, by the way. I'm going to rush to work and try to get there where I'm not very late. And I'm sitting in the living room and I'm thinking what a good thing I've done to help him get to work somewhat on time and I hear the shower come on what are you doing you're getting a shower you're already late to work and he comes out of the shower and he's dressed and he goes and he makes himself a sandwich in the kitchen he sits down and turns on ESPN I'm like you're not grasping what's happening here you are late for work you need to get your tail in the truck go to work and beg them not to fire you but he didn't understand that that was a big deal. He just said, yeah, they'll figure it out. There's other people that work there. And so because he did not understand and he did not grasp, it did not change his actions. What Paul's saying is us is because we do not understand and grasp the perfection of God, because we do, do not understand our separation from him, because we don't understand his wrath on our sin, there's no change in our life. Paul goes forward to say, we do not seek him. Instead, humans spend their lives seeking everything else. We are seekers. We are always looking for something. We always want something more. And we live in this promise that if I can just get that thing, it's going to give me what I truly want. If I could just meet a celebrity, if I could just make more money, if I could just have a relationship, if I could just have more power, this will give me the life that I want. And those things keep us from seeking the only one who can actually give us the life that we need. But we won't seek because we don't understand. And Paul culminates all of this in saying, you have become unprofitable. That word is a nice biblical way of saying you're useless. Because of the way that you live your life, human beings are useless because we reject God. 
I was driving the other day, and uh, we were in Memphis the other night, actually, and we are going through a nice part of Memphis, because if you're going to stay in Memphis, stay in that nice part of Memphis, right? And so I was driving down the road, and I was like, Jessica, that's a Ferrari right beside us. We're talking about two, $300,000 car driving beside us. Wonderful car. But as pretty as it was, and as fancy as it was, and as nice as it is to have Ferrari on your car, if that person had got in their car Saturday morning, and it would not start, that car would have been useless. It was designed for a purpose. It was designed to transport you from one place to another. Human beings, listen, you and me, were designed for a purpose. We were designed for relationship with God. When you see Adam and Eve, God puts them in the Garden of Eden before they sin. And he walks the earth with them. He talks with them. He provides them. God designed us to know God and to be known by God. And when we walk away from that because we have not grasped the death of our sin, we have become useless. We no longer function in our original design. Now, Paul continues. He starts with your brain, top of your head. He's going to begin to move down our body as he describes the sinfulness of man. Read with me verses 13 and 14. He says, Their throat is as an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is upon, under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So Paul has now moved from our brain to our mouth. And our mouth and our throat have two functions, either in or out. We put food and water down and we use it to communicate correct? And so what he's saying as he moves down through here is point B on your take-home truth is our words are sinful. Our words are sinful. And he compares our mouth to an open sepulcher. If you don't know what that is, just think grave. But don't think grave like Arkansas grave. A grave in Arkansas is we dig a hole in the ground, we put somebody in it, and we cover them up. What this is talking about is in this part of the world, they would actually dig a cave in the side of the rock and they would roll a a rock in front of it. Think Jesus' grave. And so what Paul is saying here is that our mouths function like an open grave. Just think about that for a second. What What if we buried somebody and we didn't cover them up? What if we put somebody in a cave and we forgot to roll the rock in the way? What would happen is as that body went through the natural process of deteriorating, it would begin to sink. As a matter of fact, Jesus, Jesus dealt with this when he went to uh, Lazarus. Lazarus had died. He goes to the family and says, take me to Lazarus. And what they say? We're not going in the grave. By now, he already sinks. If you open that up, we're going to get this foul odor of a deteriorating body, and we don't want that. So what Paul is saying is our mouth is like that. When we open our mouth, we, we let this foul stench of death out in the way that we communicate with cursing and bitterness. You could take subcategories there and talk about gossip and hate speech. Have you ever lived in a world where people are just angry? Or have you ever experienced the world, I guess you say, where people are angry and they just take it out on people all the time? On social media, some of you work in professional worlds where people are unhappy and they just want to come take it out on you or your employees. We slander each other. I work in the teenage world. Bullying is at an all-time high. The things that kids say to each other is horrible. These things pour out of our mouth, and it's disgusting and dangerous. Paul compares it to death. Your mouths are so horrible. The stuff that is coming out of them is so horrible. I'm going to compare it to the stench of a rotting body. That's how sinful humans are. But if you look at what he's saying, what he's, not, what he's saying is the grave is not the problem. It's what's in the grave. 
Like if you open a grave and leave it open and don't put a body in it, there's no problem with that. It's when you put something that is dead and decaying in the grave that it becomes in a problem. So if we look at our mouth and we think about what is in our mouth, it's not so much the mouth that's the problem, it's what's behind the mouth that forces things to come out of it. And Jesus tells us what the driving force behind the mouth is. This is Matthew 15, 18. It says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. So our next take-home truth is our hearts are sinful, point C. See, what comes out of your mouth is a reflection of your heart. And so if we, if we are, and we all have been at one point, if we're the kind of people that we just, we just kind of vomit nastiness, whether that's just bad words, gossip, talking down to people, attacking people, exploding on people, what Paul is saying is that's not actually a mouth problem, or Jesus is saying that's not actually a mouth problem, that's a heart problem. And so that tells us that what is in our heart is death. Think about that definition of death again. What does death actually mean? Death simply means separation. I die when my soul is separated from my body. Eternal death is when I am separated from God. And what happens when something or somebody dies? Their body begins to deteriorate. So what Paul's saying here is in your heart, it is so far from God, it is so separated from God, it has begun to rot. And all of these things that it pushes out of your mouth, this nastiness comes from that rotting heart. Uh, see, our hearts were separated, I'm sorry, our hearts were designed to, to give goodness and love. But as we're separated, we get the opposite of that. Vileness and hatred comes out. Now, the other thing that our heart controls is our actions. Read with me verses 15 through 18. So Paul, now moving his way all the way to the bottom of the body, he says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And they, uh, in the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So point D, our actions are sinful. See, if our mentalities are hurty and our hearts are dirty, eventually our actions will be dirty as well. And he illustrates this with your feet. Now think about your feet right now, like, like not how dirty they are. Think about which way they're pointing. Your feet are directional for you. Your feet mobilize you. You've come here today to listen to teaching. Which way are your feet pointing? They're pointing this direction. Whichever way your feet point, your attention points, whichever way your attention points, your actions point. So Paul's saying here, if you, if you look at human beings, if you look at them, they are directed by their hearts. They're directed by their feet. And he says their feet are directed often. They're swift to shed blood. And we live in a very gory society. Lots of violent video games, lots of violence on, on TV. So when we think shed blood, we see like murder scene. But it's not always about killing or mass murder. You know what I've learned about toddlers? They're physically violent. I never had to sit down and tell my daughter, if somebody takes your toy at school, you hit them. But she come home from school one day and told me, somebody took my toy. What'd you do? I hit her. No, 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 no. You don't do that. It's natural for us. I don't think any parent in the history of the world has ever taught a child to bite. But children bite. You see it on the playground. Kids don't get along, what do they do? I want to shed your blood. I want to break your nose. I want to bloody your lips. We see it as we get older, as we see what's going on in our world, in our society. Physical harm just comes natural to us. And I know what somebody like me and somebody like you thinks is, well, not me. I've restrained myself. 
I'm an adult. I don't actually do that anymore. Like, I, I know not to punch somebody in the face. At least I hope you all know that. Some of you all may need to talk to me after church. I know not to punch somebody in the face. I know not to harm somebody. But when Jesus talks about harming somebody, Jesus defines it as a heart action, not a physical action. Jesus basically says murdering somebody and thinking about murdering somebody is the same thing. So let me ask you this. Have you ever wanted to hit somebody? Has it ever just come natural to you? I want to take out my aggression on them physically. And even if you didn't, there's proof here that even our actions and our feet are swift to shed blood. Paul brings this all down to one cause and one culmination. It's in verse 18. I'm going to read it again. He says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. The reason we have no understanding, we have, a sinful, we have sinful words, we have a dead and rotting heart, and we have a, shiftness, a swiftness to shed blood, is that we have no fear of the Lord. No understanding means that we have no fear. I heard a story one time, um, somebody, and luckily I think the child was okay, but they had let their child play in the backyard, toddler age again, playing in the backyard, digging the dirt. They noticed they were kind of obsessed in this one area, and they, and they walked over to check on their kid, and their kid had dug up a nest of baby copperheads. Not knowing what they are, the kid was picking them up and playing with them, putting them in their pocket. If I remember correctly, I don't think that kid was bitten miraculously. But the kid did not understand there's something here to be scared of. And so their actions were not changed. But yet parents who had understanding of the danger of a copperhead freaked out. The, the difference is how we understand things. Because we have no understanding of God, we have no fear of him. Proverbs 9.10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And one of the things I love about Proverbs is you can always take the inverse of Proverbs is true as well. So the inverse of that would be wisdom has not begun where there is not a fear of God. Our next take home truth is our sinful actions come from a lack, come from a lack of fear of God. See, see, fear, when we talk about fear, is not simply, I'm terrified, I'm shaking. There was once a Christian denomination called the Quakers. They were called the Quakers. Quaker Oats is named after them because part of their worship service is they would quake in fear of an angry God. That's not what God wants from us. That's not what God wants, especially from his children, us Christians. But God does demand, and our faith does demand, a healthy respect of who God is, a healthy respect of his power and a healthy respect of his might. I told you guys a couple weeks ago about the speeding ticket I got, or uh, running a stop sign ticket I got when I was 18, and I had to go stand before the judge. I was not scared that that judge was going to come down and punch me, but I had a healthy respect and a fear of his position and power and authority because I knew he had the right to punish me. That's how we should look at God. And let me say this, when we talk of the gospel, we're to inform people, not scare our job is not to scare people to God. Our God is to inform them of why they should have a healthy respect of God and move them towards Christ. This is who God is. This is his perfection. This is his expectation. This is how you've miss, missed it. This is the correct respect that you owe God. So Paul's going to give this explanation of it. says this is who we all are, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you live in Batesville or New York City, man or woman, anybody, this is who you are born as being. You are sinful from your head to your toes. 
he's going to explain the purpose of law within that now. Verse 19 and 20. He says, Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall, be no, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For the law is the knowledge of sin. So he says this law that you're putting your faith in, these rules that you're putting your faith in, Christians are so bad about this. What makes you a Christian? I go to church and I don't do bad things. He says all of these rules will never justify you. As a matter of fact, the purpose of these things is to let you know how imperfect you are so that you can develop the correct fear and respect of God. You may be sitting here today and going, whew, that's me. I am sinful, I am dirty from my head to my feet. I know that if I stand before God right now, that it is not going to be good. And you will be asking yourself, as many others in this room have already asked themselves and found the answer, how do I change that? Let me tell you what you're dealing with if that's you this morning is something called conviction. But what God does is he puts a knowledge within us with the gospel of where we stand before God. He puts a knowledge in us of what's going to happen if we stand before God, if we die and stand before God right now. And he puts a fear within us of him. And that is called conviction. It means the Holy Spirit is telling you right now, you don't want to live like this. You need to be saved from this. And so the question is, how do I find salvation from this punishment and this justice that God will bring upon the whole world? Paul answers that in verses 21 through 31. It's a long passage. Read with me quickly. He says, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a perpetuation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare I say at this time his righteousness that he might be just to the justifier of him which believe in Jesus where is boasting then it is excluded by what law of works no but by the law of faith therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law he is the God of the Jews only he is not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision by faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Paul explains how we come to salvation, how salvation is given to us. And the best way to explain this as I go through this is there's some words in this passage that you need to know. There's some words that you need to understand what they mean so you can understand what Paul is saying. So on your take-home truths, your first word here from verse 21 is righteousness. Righteousness is simply the perfection of God, something that I have never attained by myself, something that you will never attain by yourself. And when Paul starts talking about the righteousness of God, he talks about it in excitement. He, he, says, he says, listen, the righteousness of God has been manifested to us. It is obvious to us. We can see it ahead of time. The law and the prophets, they all promised the righteousness of God would be here. And now we can see it. And he points to one person as the righteousness of God. He points to Jesus Christ. So the righteousness of God has come and he has lived among us. See, Jesus was not just a man that makes a cool Easter story. Jesus was God himself. 
He walked this earth in human form with every single temptation that you have, every temptation to be angry, every temptation to sin, and he lived in the perfection of God because he was God. Jesus said, I and the Father in one. So Paul says, we have seen the righteousness of God, Jesus Christ. He has come here, he has died, and he is defeated to death, and he is available to us, and that perfection can be ours. How can I get the perfection of God to be mine? How can I stand before God like Jesus? Verse 22 answers that with the word faith. Faith, that's your B, point B, is certainty in what you cannot see. See, see, the righteousness of God is available to you, not by your actions, not by being a church person, not by being goodness, not on a church roll. Your faith in God is what makes you righteous before God. You can have the righteousness of Jesus for only faith. It simply means this, that you hear the story and you become convinced within yourself, this is true. I believe if I stand before God, it's gonna be bad. I believe I need a way out of this. Oh, I believe that Jesus provided a way out of this. That's all it takes. And the book of Acts, when they shared the gospel, the book of Acts often phrases this way, and those that heard the word, those that heard the gospel, received it. See, a lot of times we think belief means, do I mentally believe it? It's not mental belief, it's heart belief. It means that if, if I'm sitting here and I have this knowledge of how I stand before God, I have a question before me. What am I gonna do with this information? And the Bible teaches us, you receive that. You make a decision. If he really is God, if he is who he says he is, I am going to give my life to him. I receive his salvation. We most often phrase that as a prayer. I'm not convinced that it's the only way to come to Christ, but we often rephrase that as a prayer. I just go to Jesus and be like, look, I believe you are who you say you are. I know I am a sinner. I want to be yours. I want you to save me. I want your righteousness because I can't get it for myself and I know that I will be punished. I want to receive it. The Bible says that all who believe will receive. So this tells us what happens afterwards. What happens if I place my faith in Jesus Christ? If I make a decision to receive his salvation, what happens? Verse 24 uses the word justified. Justified just means that we are found righteous. That's a court word. When you stand before God, you stand before God as the judge, and he looks down on you and he's ready to pass punishment, he's going to look at you and he's going to see nothing that you need to be punished for. You are justified in your actions. You will stand before him as innocent as Jesus Christ, and this is an effect of also verse 24, grace. Grace, which is the unmerited favor of God. That's point E on your take-home truths. This is offered to you not because you deserve it, because God loves you and he made it available to you. It is a gift. He wants to give you salvation. You don't have to earn it. Don't try to make God happy enough with you to give you salvation. All he wants you to do is receive it. He's holding it out there for you. It's available for you. You can have it. But like all gifts, there was a price. The next word you need to know, point F, is verse 25. It says that Jesus Christ was the perpetuation for our sin. Perpetuation is a fancy word that means Jesus Christ appeased God's anger. See, when Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't just a story about how this is going to make Easter really cool and how Jesus is going to die and come back. He went to the cross and he experienced death, but he not only experienced death, he experienced the full weight of God's anger and wrath at me and you was placed on him. 
And for that reason, God's wrath for us was appeased on Jesus Christ. God does not have to punish us because he has already punished Jesus Christ. See, Jesus took the wrath so that I could be justified before God. Jesus died so I could have life. Jesus took the punishment so that I could have his righteousness. And we can stand before God in his grace. So the question that I have for you today is what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do? You have a decision to make. You may not have noticed, but in the example I used at the beginning of the sermon with the state trooper, you noticed on day three, there was a person that drove right past that kid with that sign that said slow down and didn't slow down and he received a ticket. Same guy, not very smart, on day four. The warning was before him, but he ignored it and he paid the price. Today, the warning is before us of what we will pay for the price for without Jesus Christ. And you don't know when that moment is going to come. Liv, if you want to start making your way up here. One more story and then I'll be done. About five years ago, Jessica and I took a trip up to Branson, a weekend getaway trip before school. And it was a bright, sunshiny day. Wonderful, beautiful day. And we had been out and got hot and sweaty. And Jessica said, before we go eat tonight, I want to take a shower. So we went to the hotel room, and it was sunny, and it was bright when we came in. 30 minutes later, she gets out of the shower. She's dressed. I open the door, and a huge storm is blowing outside. It caught me so off guard. Many of you know what happened that day. That day that we were in Branson, you may remember the ride, the Branson Ducks, the, the duck ride. They'd taken one of those ducks off into the lake. It was a sunny day, and the storm blew up, and it capsized that duck. I think 15 people drowned that day. Now, I never really understood how quickly death could come upon us until that night. I was driving down the strip, and I drove past where the Branson ducks load. And in the parking lot at 10.30 at night, there were seven cars waiting on families who would never come back for them. I had this vision of people getting ready for this attraction. It's another day. We're arguing over whether should I leave my purse in the car or should I take it? We're telling the kids, pop down or we're not going. We're late. When are we going to eat? Are we going to eat after we get off this? And those people got on that thing not knowing that 30 minutes later their life would be ended. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. And some of you are coming in here every Sunday and you're going, I'm going to wait till next week. I'm going to wait till next week. I'm going to wait till next week. One day there will be no next week. The warning is before you. Today is the day to come to Christ. He will give you salvation. And for you, maybe it all it takes is taking your foot and pointing it one direction. Walk up here. I will guide you through it personally. But don't leave here again today ignoring the warning. It may be too late. Let's stand and worship.